God's word is supernatural. And it's always new. And it's always contemporary. And it's always relevant. As we go to the book of Genesis this morning, by the way, we're going to Genesis chapter 1. And verses 14 through 19 is our text. I I think it would be fair to say that uh, what we have been studying in the book of Genesis is just as alive today as it's always been. Because God's truth is always God's truth. And God's truth is always right. We said from the very beginning of our studies that if we believe the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning God, then we can believe every word in the Bible. Today our focus is upon the fourth day of creation. The fourth 24-hour day of creation. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Shall we pray? Father, it is our heart's desire this morning to read, to know, to study, and to grow in your precious word. To become more and more equipped in the truth of your word, especially as we deal with the issues of creation and evolution. We know, Father, that you are a great and awesome God. And there is no other or no thing like you. And we bow, Lord God, to your omnipotence, to your omniscience, and in your omnipresence, we give you thanks and praise. Fill us now, Lord, with your Spirit, and grant us your wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, being that this is Valentine's Day, I'm wondering whether people have taken for granted that our great and awesome God has placed the moon and the stars in their place just so that they can say to their special Valentine, I'll give you the moon and the stars if you'll be mine. Or have they thanked the Lord that He did what He did so that they could with their best voices sing Moon River Wider than a mile, I'm crossing you in style someday. By the way, you can't have a moon river without a moon. 
And God placed the moon where he did. And had the Lord not put these celestial bodies in place, who could ever sing the words, I swear by the moon and the stars in the sky. By the way, I'm not telling you to swear by these things. Or you sing the lyrics in the song, You're my world, that say, I see stars up in the sky, but for me they shine within your eyes. Are you guys taking notes? It's all a little bit mushy, isn't it? Enough already with that. Happy Valentine's. We're now entering into the sixth week of our study in the book of Genesis, and specifically in our study of divine creation, which, by the way, was accomplished in six 24-hour days. If you haven't been up with us as far as our other studies, we encourage you to order the CDs. But we've come to learn, as we've compared and contrasted the biblical account of creation with humanistic, atheistic, quasi-scientific, Darwinian evolutionary theory, that both approaches, even as broad as evolutionary perspectives may be, must be believed by faith. We must believe the Bible, the Word of God, by faith. But you have to have a whole lot more faith to believe what Darwinian evolutionists are teaching. We've covered that a little bit. We cover it a little bit more as we go on. We've even contrasted creation with theistic evolution, finding that theory, the theory that some believe, uh, or some say they believe in God, but they also believe that God needed millions and millions of years and therefore used the method of, of evolution to create what he did. Well, we find that theory to be wanting, both scientifically as well as biblically. So we're now considering the fourth day of creation. But let's quickly review Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, Elohim, the triune God, Elohim, by the word of His power, spoke everything that would be created into existence. He spoke space, time, and matter into existence. And we know then, because of the scriptures, that space, time, and matter, which is something that scientists are all concerned about, space, time, matter. Space, time, and matter appeared instantaneously out of nothing, ex nihilo, or in the Hebrew word, the, the word barah, which we covered as well in our previous studies. The earth in its most unformed and unfinished state began its rotation while yet being unformed, and God spoke and light was provided to give evidence of that first day's work. And we knew that by the statement, the evening and the morning were the first day. All in one day, God brought about the rotation of the earth, the light source to show us that, indeed, this was a 24-hour period. On the second day, the Lord created the firmament, he created the breathable atmosphere for the earth. While having separated or divided the waters below from the waters above the airspace, what we would now consider the area of the clouds and the vapor canopy, which was a lot greater as a vapor canopy back then than it is today. Of course, we'll see the deterioration of that as we go on. The third day saw the gathering of waters and the appearance of the dry land. And on the very same day, the creation of plant life. Now we've stated over the past couple of weeks that the first three days of creation were foundational. 
foundational, light, breathable atmosphere, and dry land with vegetation for food. All of this was necessary to make the earth habitable. So now, on the fourth day, we see the creation and the distribution of light upon the earth to regulate the seasons, the days, and the years. You see, naturalistic science, science that does not believe in God, that only believes in nature, naturalistic science has always struggled to explain all the stars and planets that exist in the universe. They ask the questions, how could so much evolve out of nothing? How did the stars get scattered across such a vast expanse of space? Why is there such diversity among them? What sets the stars ablaze and where did the planets come from? Well, of course, the simple answer is God made them all. That's the simple answer. That's what we see in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Their immensity, their complexity, their beauty, and their sheer number all reveal the glory and wisdom of an omnipotent Creator. And they also remind us how amazing it is that such an awesome Creator would lavish His bountiful grace and mercy and favor on the human race. That's amazing. Consider, if you will, from the perspective of size alone, that our whole world comprises only an infinitesimal speck in the immensity of all that He created. This earth, an infinitesimal speck. Now think about this. If the earth is a speck, what are we? that are on this earth. We're even more infinitesimally speckless, or speckful, actually. Not respectful, but speckful. We're, we're all specks. So think of that immensity of the creation. The earth being as small as it is, we even smaller. And then think of something that David pointed out for us in Psalm 8. When he said, When I consider thy heavens... The work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? As David gazed into an immensely vast universe, he realized it was just the finger work of God. You remember when your kids were growing up? And they got to that age where you finally allowed them to use finger paints. The paints weren't just on paper, furniture, and walls, and refrigerator. They were creating. But think of God. This was just the work of His fingers. The moon and the stars which He ordained. As great as the universe is, and this is the point, as great as the universe is, God is infinitely, considerably greater. God is greater than His creation. And the human race is really nothing by comparison. 
And yet God's creative purpose has always placed the human race at its center. Of all His creatures, we alone are made in His image. Of all of His creatures. And we're not talking about Klingons and Vulcans and Ferengis. We. Oh, by the way, we're also not talking about apes and chimpanzees. Because evolution will come and tell you, they'll show you a picture of a, of a chimp and they'll say, Our father. No. In the beginning, God knew what he was doing. And he said, We will make them in our image. Speaking of the triune God. I don't want to get ahead of myself. The whole of creation and the whole of the creation account in chapter 1 of Genesis is told from an earthly perspective. Consider that. Told from an earthly perspective which emphasizes the centrality of this little planet in God's creative purpose. Now we're going to talk a little bit uh, from here on about uh, those who believe there might be life in other places in the universe. We'll get to that in a moment. But it hasn't been proven yet. The focus of God's attention is right here on this little earth. By the way, the third planet from the sun. God said, verses 14 and 15, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Remember that formula. God said, and it was so. The Ten Commandments in Genesis chapter 1. Ten times. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. These are the Ten Commandments that were kept completely. Every time God said, it was so. Now, there are those who have suggested that there are probably a lot of planets in the universe that contain habitable life. Carl Sagan, we talked about him last week. Carl Sagan thought that there might be millions of intelligent civilizations in the universe like ours. That's what the SETI project was all about. SETI meaning search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And although they have yet to find anything intelligent, they still look it. They haven't found it yet. But this is probably why he wrote in his book, Pale Blue Dot, which emphasizes that earthly existence is not only ordinary, but insignificant and purposeless. This is what Carl Sagan wrote. He said, because of the reflection of, the, of sunlight, the earth seems to be sitting in a beam of light, as if there were some special significance to this small world. But it's just an accident of geometry and physics. I'm sorry, geometry and optics. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. I have to let you know, Carl Sagan now knows the truth. He died a few years ago. He now knows the truth. 
He faced his maker. And this is pretty much what evolutionists believe. We're just an accident. We have no real purpose. No real, no real significance. Think about what we quoted from Richard Dawkins in the last few weeks. No purpose for the human race. Why then is God creating all these things for such a measly planet? And why can't NASA astrobiologists... Those who study the qualifications for complex life to exist on a planet, even after having identified more than a hundred planets outside our solar system, all of them, by the way, having atmospheres of unbreathable gases, find even one habitable planet outside of this system. Why can't they even find one planet outside of, their system, outside of this system? Are, are habitable planets rare or are they common? They're wanting to find even one. Obviously, it must be rare. So here are the qualifications for complex life to exist. I want to run through this very quickly. Here are some of the qualifications. There are actually anywhere from 20 to 33, depending on which website you look at. But there's, there's qualifications for complex life to exist. And, and I'm just going to give you six of them. First one is liquid water. The chemical properties of water are necessary for life. It transports chemicals vital for our bodies. It has an ability to absorb heat from the sun, critical for regulating temperature, liquid water. Secondly, uh, distance from the star, which for us would be the sun. Uh, for water to exist, the planet must be the right distance from its star. Our planet is what is called, it is in the Goldilocks zone. You know what the Goldilocks zone is? It's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right. So, so Earth is on, in, in the Goldilocks zone, uh, a very narrow zone in our solar system. If the Earth was just 5% uh, closer to the sun, it would be like Venus, surrounded by vapor too hot, up to 900 degrees. If the Earth were just 20% farther, carbon dioxide clouds would form in upper atmosphere, an ice age would occur, and the Earth would become like Mars. So distance from the star is one of the qualifications for complex life to exist. Thirdly, it's the type of star. The type of star uh, orbiting a main sequence G2 dwarf star. If the sun was less massive, if the sun was less massive, like 90% of the stars in the galaxy, the habitable circumstellar region where a habitable planet orbits would be smaller and closer to the sun. And if the earth were closer to the sun, then the sun's gravitational pull on the earth would be greater and eventually stop the rotation of the earth. And one side of the planet would cook while the other would freeze. So, the kind of star then that we have is important. Fourthly, one of the qualifications uh, for complex life to exist is that it be orbited by a large moon. Now, ours is a quarter of the size of the earth. Our moon is, and the gravitational pull of the moon stabilizes the Earth's rotation axis at 23.5 degrees, which ensures temperate season changes and the only climate in the solar system able to support complex life. Fifthly, magnetic fields, or a magnetic field. The liquid iron in the core generates a magnetic field that protects us from the solar wind. If our planet was smaller, the field would be weaker and the solar wind would strip away our atmosphere. And then, of course, we need, and this is the sixth one, and the last one for us today, but it is, uh, we need to have an oxygen-rich atmosphere. 
at, least, uh, at less than 1% of the Earth's diameter, our atmosphere is comprised of 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, and 1% carbon dioxide. This mixture provides a temperate climate, protection from the sun's harmful rays, and the correct mixture, uh, mixture of gases for water and complex life. So we're just scratching the surface of requirements for life, all of which are coincidentally found on planet Earth. And the typical list, as I said before, uh, list uh, of requirements for habitable life contains anywhere from 20 to 33 uh, things. And Earth has them all. So when you calculate now the probabilities of the basics being in place on a planet and multiply it all out, what are the probabilities, in other words, of another planet of this type Scientists have come up with a probability being something like 1 uh, over 10 with 14 zeros. That's a lot of zeros. And if you look at the point uh, zero, 00 all the way down to 1, that's the probability. That's the probability. I don't even know if there's a number you can call that. But compared to the hundred billion stars in the galaxy, it seems highly unlikely that there is any better place to live than on Earth. And if this still doesn't make sense, as far as probability goes, let me just put it this way. The chances of being killed by lightning are roughly 2,650,000 to 1. The chances of winning the lottery range from 18 million to 1 in single state lotteries and 120 million to 1 in multiple state lotteries. That's, that's the chance of winning the lottery. Uh, uh, you and I, in other words, have a better chance of being struck by lightning. Because of the, you know, because of the probabilities and the numbers. We have a better chance of being struck by lightning. So I'm just telling you, that's your chances next time you buy a ticket. Now compare these numbers with the probability of life on other planets, 1 over 10 with 14 zeros, in a word, it's improbable, at best, impossible. But they're still trying. There's a new uh, slide that you could put up there. Let me read about this. I want to just, uh, uh, tell you about uh, January the 4th, 2010, NASA's Kepler Space Telescope, designed to find Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone of sun-like stars, has discovered its first five new exoplanets. This is from science.nasa.gov. The, the five planets, if you'll notice, I don't think I have a pointer. Do I have a pointer here somewhere? Used to have one. I don't know. Anyway, you'll notice the big red ones and the big uh, uh, orange and yellow one. And there, in the middle, there's the little one. Those are the five planets. They've got names, uh, Kepler 7b, 6b, 4b, 5b, and so on. Uh, these five planets are quite a bit larger than Earth, yes, because notice where Earth is. Can you even see it? You see where it says water boils? <laughs> and we're below that. Look at that little dot. That's us. That's Earth. All right. And then in comparison around us, Mercury, Venus, and uh, Jupiter, and Neptune. Uh, so uh, 
here's the thing. Uh, the five planets, this is from that article, the five planets are quite a bit larger than Earth, known as hot Jupiters because of their high masses and extreme temperatures. The new exoplanets range in size from similar to Neptune to larger than Jupiter. They have orbits ranging from 3.3 to 4.9 days. Estimated temperatures of the planets range from, I'll get this, 2200 to 3000 degrees Fahrenheit. And then in the article it says, hotter than molten lava and much too hot for life as we know it. They are masters of the obvious. Now, it says, it's gratifying to see, and this is a quote from uh, uh, a director of astrophysics at NASA, it's gratifying to see the first Kepler discoveries rolling off the assembly line. We expected Jupiter-sized planets in short orbits to be the first planets Kepler could detect. It's only a matter of time before more Kepler observations lead to smaller planets with longer period orbits coming closer and closer to the discovery of the first Earth analog. Well, they got a way to go. Even with a small one, they still got a way to go. They're still looking, you see, because they're intent on knowing and finding that there's got to be another planet out there with some life. But listen to what God says in Isaiah 48, verse 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my call. I am he, I am the first, I am the last. My hand also has laid the foundation of the earth. And my right hand has spanned the heavens. When I called unto them, they stand up together. God's focus is here with us. And we could argue whether, you know, God, is as great as He is, can still put life anywhere. But you know what? Whatever is in God's Word has to regulate even life anywhere else. But that's for another time. We'll talk about that next time. Let's go back to our text. It needs to be stated that the word for lights in verse 14 differs slightly from the word used in verse 3. When the Lord said, let there be light in verse 3, that word for light is the word, the Hebrew word or, O-R, which suggests an intrinsic fundamental light source not dependent upon external circumstances. When you consider that, consider the very fact that we've talked a lot about Jesus being the light of the world. About the very fact that Jesus, who was the creator, as we've read in Colossians chapter 1, was also present when light existed. When we read the, uh, the book of Revelation, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, we realize that there is a throne of God, and from the throne is the light. No need for sun any longer. For that which lights is the Lamb of God. Intrinsic and fundamental light source not dependent upon external circumstances. And as he created the rotation of the earth, we had the first day and first night. The word in verse 14, though, is not or, but maor, M-A-O-R. And literally, it means light holders or generators of light. And so as God places the moon and the stars, and the, uh, I should say the sun, the moon and the stars, of course we know that the, that the moon itself is that which only reflects the light of the sun upon the earth. But the stars themselves all generate light. And all of this was done, think about it, for the earth. Everything was placed by God for the earth. In uh, Me'am Loez, which is a 17th century Jewish commentary on the Hebrew scriptures written in the language Ladino, 
which is a Sephardic Judeo-Spanish language, uh, there's an interesting observation on this portion of Genesis written by a rabbi. And this is what he said, and I quote, The sun was created after the earth to dispel any notion that the creation of the earth was a natural result of the sun's heat vaporizing the waters. Similarly, lest anyone contend that plant life is a natural outgrowth of the earth, aided by the sun, God created the earth and all its properties on the third day, and only afterwards on the fourth day did he create the sun, to demonstrate unequivocally that everything materialized from God's direct will. I tell you what, I believe that. That's a very, very insightful statement that comes from the 17th century. God made the sun and the moon to be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And since the beginning, man had had used God's provision of sun and moon and even the stars to mark and to measure time and direction and to provide a basis for our calendar. Uh, you do know that uh, we live uh, a lot uh, by the calendar, don't we? We're here today because we knew on a calendar it said Sunday. And so, oh, Sunday, time to go to church. And we'll know about tomorrow, right? Because we've got to go back to work, some of us, or some of you. We live by that. Where did it come from? What's its basis? Its basis is the very thing that God created so that we might have regulation upon our time. Because what else was created in the beginning? Time. So God places these things so that we can now regulate time. Now, even evolutionists must concede to the preciseness of God's placement of these necessary functions. And as far as signs go, we must consider something that is called the Maseroth. It is uh, found in uh, Job chapter 38, but the Maseroth is really just the constellations that we see in the sky. Every culture has considered the, the, the Maseroth in one way or another, but all of them have seen the same things. God placed a message in the, sky, in the stars. And that message still can be seen today. I mean, we can see the obvious. We can see the North Star and the, uh, and the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper and on the, in, the, in the winter sky, which you see in the evenings now, is Orion. It's mentioned here in Scripture. Turn to Job 38, verses 31 to 33. It's mentioned in God's Word. God, as a matter of fact, speaks about them. If you look at Job 38, verse 31... God is speaking now to Job. He has told Job, you be silent, I speak now. And he says, canst thou bind the, the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Orion is the constellation of the southern sky in the winter. And it's mentioned in the oldest book of the Bible, by the way. Did you know that Job is actually the oldest book of the Bible? It's even older. In Genesis. Verse 32, Canst thou bring forth Maseroth in his season? Maseroth being the constellations, or the whole message of the constellations? Or canst thou guide Arcturus 
with his sons? Knowest thou the ordinances of heaven? Canst thou set the dominion thereof in the earth? Can you, Job, do that? God is saying to him, no, I did. There are those who have suggested that in the very constellations of the stars you can read the story of God's plan for man, beginning with what is called the Virgo, the Virgin. By the way, I'm not talking about astrology here. Not yet, anyway. Virgo is a real constellation. And what do we find? The Virgin, stretching all the way across until we get to Leo, which is what? The lion. There's a story being told, a message being given in the stars. The corruption, though, the corruption of it all came when what is called the zodiac uh, became the focal point of astrology. That became the focal point. The corruption of the Lord's original message in the stars. That's the way Satan works. He takes what God made to be good and he corrupts it and gives it to man. And says, no, it's not God's message, it's my message. And that, of course, should be avoided. Astrology should be avoided. As we're told in Isaiah 47, verses 12 through 15, uh, first of all, you read these very sarcastic statements, as it were. Stand now with thine enchantments, and with the multitude of thy sorceries, wherein thou hast labored from thy youth. If so be that thou shalt be able to profit, if, if so be thou mayest prevail... Thou art wearied in thy multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There shall not be a coal to warm at, uh, nor fire to sit before it. Thus shall they be unto thee with whom thou hast labored, even thy merchants from thy youth. They shall wander everyone to his quarter, none shall save thee. I think that's a pretty strong warning to stay away from astrology. Don't mess with that. But do try to understand what God is saying about what he did in placing the stars in the sky with a message. Because I want you to consider these verses for a moment. Consider Luke chapter 1 verse 70. That says, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. How many prophets were around since the world began? Unless it be the message that God put in the stars as, as prophetic. Or even think once again of what Luke writes in Acts chapter 3.21 when he quotes from Peter himself who, who said in his preaching, whom the heaven must receive, speaking of Jesus, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. God speaking since the world began through holy prophets. May these prophets have been the stars themselves. Something to think about. Something to consider. Because even the psalmist says that the stars have names. Psalms 147.4 He telleth the number of the stars. In other words, he knows exactly how many stars there are in the universe. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Isaiah 40, verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who has created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. Speaking of the stars, He calleth them all by names by the greatness of His might, for that He is strong in power, not one faileth. And then think about the message of Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. 
Day unto day uttereth speech. Notice, day unto day, utter, uh, day, unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom cometh out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run the race. His going forth is from the, hev- the end of heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The heavens declare the glory of God. The, the declaration is the message of heaven. It's the message of all that God created, including the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so the psalmist is telling us that the heavens contain a message from God. The heavens indeed declare the glory of God. Well, I got a little ahead of myself, so let's go back and read our text once more. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament, the heaven to divide the day from the night. We've already spoken of how God has divided day from night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. But now notice verse 16. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day. And the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And to rule over the day and over the night. And to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day, the fourth 24-hour day. Now here's a question. How did Moses know that the sun was bigger than the moon? How did he know that the sun was bigger than the moon when he calls it the greater light in comparison to the lesser light. And we're dealing here actually because of two things. Because of size as well as because of the intensity of the light on the day in in the sun. But the question can arise. How how did Moses know the sun was bigger than the moon? An ordinary observation. Think about this. An ordinary observation might lead to the opposite conclusion. There are times when we have seen what is called the harvest moon. Anybody seen the harvest moon? You might not know that you have but I think we all have. The harvest moon would be that moon which rises and dominates the skyline as it appears to rise. Harvest, of course, coming really at the fall. Sometimes we look out at night and we see the moon just as big as we've ever seen it before. And you would say, if you saw that, you would think, wow, we've never seen the sun look as large as that. How did Moses know? Here's where the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is clearly seen. Moses said it's the greater light because God told him it's the greater light. Now, Moses also did not call the sun the greatest light to rule the day. Why? Why isn't it the greatest light instead of the greater light? Well, for one, many ancient peoples worshipped the sun as the greatest object in the heavens. And so he's not going to say, yeah, it's the greatest to worship. That wasn't the idea of writing it in that way. 
But then consider another thing. What a blunder it would have been had Moses said that the sun was the greatest light in the heavens. Now we know, it's because it's been estimated, that there is a star called Antares, a star that is so large that it could swallow 64 million suns the size of ours. Out in the universe, there are stars that are greater than ours. But how did he know? To say it's the greater light of ours. Again, we see the truth of the Holy Spirit being shown clearly in the Word of God. Lastly, the Lord God dismisses the creation of all the stars in space with astonishing brevity. He uses five words. Talks about the sun and the moon and then he says, and he made the stars also. That's all he says about the stars. And he made the stars also. Had man written the Bible, apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he would have probably written about the billions and the billions and billions of stars in our galaxy, the hundred million other galaxies in space, and been fascinated by the enormity of it all, because that's the way we are. We'd have gone on and on of talking about the stars. Scripture just says, and he made the stars too. Why? Because God is more interested in people than he is about planets. God is more interested in souls than he is about stars. God can speak and stars will be there. But when it comes to us, what do we know? You see, man wants to find life in other places. Well, they've missed the life given to us by God here so freely to receive. They've missed him. Even his own people missed him. He came unto his own and his own did not receive him. You want to talk about a great message of love today? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Notice this, that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. We'll study this in a couple of chapters. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they were wrought or done in God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The greatest love story ever told for this little measly speck of a planet. And yet think about the people. Think about the souls. 
that God cares about. That he would send his only son to die on a cross. And by the way, the cross being that very place where the greatest expression of love was ever, ever given. To die for the sins of men created in the image of God. When God created the heaven and the earth, he created it in the very understanding of his love. Because we can never separate God's love from his character, God's love from his creative power, God's love from his holiness and his righteousness. And while he is ever holy, 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 the Bible still says he is love as well. There was love in his creative purposes for us. And we should never discount that love. To think that there is no purpose for any life. To think as those who don't believe that there is a God. That somehow there might be life any place else. Or that it took billions and billions of years to, to go through the evolutionary process and we can come to nothing. Because we came out of nothing. But we need to believe the first four words in the beginning. God created the heaven and the earth in love and with purpose. So let people keep looking. They won't find what they're looking for until they find Jesus Christ himself. Let me leave you with one last thought. kind of pertains to extraterrestrial intelligence there's a quote that I found that I just, I just think you, got, you guys just need to hear it says this the US government spends a hundred million dollars a year looking for extraterrestrial intelligence it might be wiser to spend the money cultivating intelligent life in Washington <laughs> enough said Let's pray.